guys ready? So morning, everybody, and thank you very much for coming out on a really ugly day. And thank you, Emily, for coming out on a really ugly day. So this is a continuing uh, series, a part of the Community Cultural Community Collaborative. Um, and I'm very delighted to introduce Professor Emily Satterwhite, who's visiting with us for a faculty forum today in that series. Emily serves as Associate Professor of Humanities in the Department of Religion and Culture here at Virginia Tech. She received her PhD from Emory University in 2005. Her research includes a common area with us, certainly, Appalachian studies, uh, reception studies, popular culture, critical whiteness studies, and social and cultural history. Professor Satterwhite's book, Dear Appalachia, Readers, Identity, and Popular Fiction Since 1878, the University Press of Kentucky, examined fan mail in order to assess the social needs and desires that prompted readers' fascination with the idea of Appalachia as constructed and best-selling fiction. Her current book uh, examines hillbilly horror slasher films. I hope you'll say more about this, Emily, for the ways in which we theorize place, race, and class. In general, um, she's a very accomplished scholar. She's editorially, she's a board member of um, Reception Texts, Readers, Audiences, History Reception Study Society uh, since 2006. She's presently a reviewer for Southern Spaces, um, and she remains very active, I think, in the community and for um, the Aspect Journal, Spectre, here um, on campus. So we're delighted to, have, to welcome Emily and look forward to her presentation. Thanks so much for sharing your research with us. Thank you so much for, for having me here today. I'm so impressed with Laura Netta's work in um, engaging with the work that I've been trying to do over the past uh, 15 years and more. It's a lot for them to have covered in the throes of the semester. So thank you for, for your wonderful questions. I look forward to the conversation. Um, for my introduction today, I want to talk less about my published writing and more about my um, current thinking and um, experience of the university um, and what it has come to mean for me in 2018, the notion of uh, research and especially praxis um, and community engagement. Um, the images on my opening slide here include um, some of the, on the right, violations um, documented by community volunteers with Mountain Valley Watch uh, during the construction of the Mountain Valley fracked gas pipeline. That, that image was taken um, on Brush Mountain and is one of hundreds if not thousands of images of failures in sediment and erosion control. Um, and the Department of Environmental Quality has not, not once issued a stop work order. They have paused work, which they said was voluntary on the part of Mountain Valley Pipeline LLC, um, and then reinspected sites before opening them back up for construction. But they have not um, themselves issued a directive to stop work. And on the left in this image is Brush Mountain. Um, it's. Um, an excavator on the property of um, Del Dyer, who has a um, advantage ranch, uh, stables, uh, local business, um, and is a retired Virginia Tech professor. And um, this uh, easement comes through his land against 
against his wishes. And he did eventually sign an easement after fighting it for, for years and years. And, um, and then barely up in the top left, you can see me, um, my head peeking out over the top of that arm. Um, that was on June 28th. Uh, 2018 this summer and so that's really when I what I want to talk about today is how I got to there um, literally and um, emotionally and intellectually I was telling uh, one of my colleagues in the geography department about my experiences after this day and engaging with colleagues at Virginia Tech and um, one of the things that he said back to me, this, these are not verbatim because I wasn't recording him at the time, but he said something along the lines, yes, if we do what we're supposed to do as academics, we have little to no impact. I don't fully agree with him, by the way, but that's the way we were feeling that day in that conversation. And if we do something impactful, we undermine our credibility as academics. And definitely um, my status as an academic has been questioned. Um, as a consequence of my um, choices. So I do feel like the second piece has been something I've been, been struggling with, which is one reason that I appreciate the invitation to speak. Um, there, there's a, a sense of lending credibility there um, that, that you honor me with today. So I appreciate that. Now, um, I went to grad school in 1998 because I wanted to study Appalachia. And so from the beginning, although my undergraduate degree was in English, I pursued a PhD because I cared about the people and places in Appalachia. That's why I went to school. And that's part of what it means, um, I believe, to do Appalachian studies. So it's, you may know the work um, Power and Powerlessness by John Gaventa, an important work in Appalachian studies and beyond. Um, this is something that he said in 1978 that the most informative research in writing to address the economic inequalities of the Appalachian region has not come from the circles of academe. Rather, it has come primarily from those who have been directly involved in the struggles against the inequalities, be they citizens' organizations, the committed journalists, the investigative re researcher, or the activist. Struggles for economic change must involve changing the knowledge industry. So there's a way in which he's talking about the trying to give more weight to um, people on the ground, but he's also... Um, calling for academics to be in conversation with and to know with, to know through um, non-academics. Um, so in that way, I think he's not dismissing the important role of academics, but he's asking academics to um, respect the expertise of others. Um, so he has, since the 70s, which is the founding of Appalachian Studies, like others in the field, called for a more direct relationship between Appalachian Studies and the lives of those fighting inequality in the region. He and other founders believed that an Appalachian Studies not grounded in politics was irresponsible and often more harmful than beneficial to the region's inhabitants. So what I'm trying to establish here is that while for some people my summer vacation may have come out of left field, since I even occurred to me to pursue a PhD, the well-being of the region is part of what was driving that scholarly inquiry. And the entire time I was in Atlanta for grad school, I was aware of the increasing pace of mountaintop removal mining, which was too many hours away from Atlanta for me to participate in as I struggled to, to finish the, the PhD, but that was a constant presence 
in the work that I was doing in the archives and reading the fiction and, and the other work that I was doing, my inability to be with that fight weighed on me. The book that eventually came out of the dissertation is Dear Appalachia. Um, and as Dr. Stevenson mentioned, it looks at fan mail um, to try to determine the ways that readers imagined Appalachia and how the popular fiction um, helped them imagine Appalachia, why they needed to imagine Appalachia, the ways that were um, available in the best-selling fiction. And again, always along the way, being primarily concerned with what the consequences of that imagination or those imaginations of region were. What did it matter? Um, particularly in terms of imagining Appalachia as um, the, the hearth of the nation and a sort of um, underground, maybe not so underground sometimes, uh, white nationalism, a sense that we, in which celebrating Appalachia, celebrating folk, has often gone hand in hand with celebrating whiteness. And so my concern um, when reading the, the letters was often with both the ways the reading the fiction shored up people's sense of self and gave an affirmation to and a legitimacy to um, being rural or being agrarian or being Appalachian or being mountain in a world that um, tends to have a hierarchy in which you know New York City and London are at the pinnacle and everything else falls away from there. But also, so seeing positive identity work arising from the fiction, but also being very concerned about white nationalism um, uh, and sort of a desire to inhabit a place without people of color or um, queer people or trans people, um, although that wouldn't have been the language that people would have used in 1970s or 19. Uh, teens when the readers that I was looking at this the idea that there was a place that was American in this quintessential way which meant very much um, heterosexual patriarchal white um, so um, this is a list I don't know how well you can read it of just some pieces of my publishing over the years from 2005 to 2017 and you can see poor Laura and Netta had to navigate this like wildly it looks like some that can be the same person who wrote all these things but starting with um, what I was just talking about concern about what nationalism and the idea of Appalachia have to do um, what fiction and authenticity what what the notion of authenticity um, how dangerous that can be um, imagining uh, Appalachia, how that contributed potentially to imperial, U.S. imperialism, um, how romancing whiteness and Appalachianness go hand in hand, to being concerned about um, Appalachian studies tendencies sometimes to claim insiderness versus outsiderness. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I don't have. I have an affinity for Appalachia. Um, I can certainly, if I have to, make claims to ancestry on my dad's side, but why, as scholars, can we not know stuff that we didn't live? Not, again, it's really important to also consult with the lived experiences that people have, um, but I think it's also, as a scholar, I believe you can know stuff, um, whether you lived it or not, and in fact, we must. Um, 
And certainly groups like Friends of Coal have um, leveraged the insider-outsider kinds of dichotomies to their advantage rather than the people's. So um, I get really frustrated with um, exclusive claims to Appalachianness that aren't um, building towards common, common projects. I started thinking about, so I wrote about all this romantic literature and romanticizing Appalachia, and at the same time I was dating and then marrying uh, my boyfriend, now husband, who's a horror movie fan, and realizing how often rural places were showing up in these, these horrible things that he was making me watch. And so I went from looking at these really romanticized small town visions of Appalachia to thinking about movies like Wrong Turn, where deformed hillbillies are attacking outsiders, college students who make a wrong turn coming through West Virginia and such. And I got really interested in, on the one hand, well, we'll, we'll talk, we can talk more about this in, in conversation with Laura and Netta, but so I, I thought the second book was Hillbilly Horror. It, I might have been, that might not happen now. We, we'll see. Um, but that's certainly where I had been the last few years. But I started working more with people across the Virginia Tech campus um, who were uh, experts in emissions, uh, air emissions, water quality, um, public health, and was able to, because I ended up at a place like Virginia Tech instead of a place like where I thought I would be a liberal arts college like the one I went to, was able to start making some of these connections to full, come full circle to what had driven me to graduate school in 1998 and really start to think about how can the academy contribute to the community and what role can the academy play here. Um, in, including with a grad student um, work on um, the opioid epidemic. So that, this 13 years that I've been here, mountaintop removal mining continued apace. I was chasing tenure, then my husband was chasing tenure, then we were raising a daughter who's now nine, and so um, I was now only three hours away instead of eight hours away from the thick of the fight and still not able to participate. Um, this has been the notion of economic development that has um, driven the coal fields, the mountaintop removal, coal mining, for decades. And as you can see in the uh, map on the right, from the um, so the the green is mountaintop removal mine sites, and the deeper the red, the more distressed the poverty rate. The deepest being more than twenty eight percent. And um, there's obviously not an exact correlation, but there is certainly something to be questioned about whether this um, all eggs in one basket mode of economic development has played out for people on the ground in eastern Kentucky and um, in some southwest Virginia counties and Tennessee and West Virginia counties. And before I leave this slide, I just want to point out that um, that uh, the, the white county here, I'm going to step over here. White County here, this kind of little triangle on the West Virginia, Virginia border. That's Monroe County, which I want to talk about a little bit more um, because it's in the path of the Mountain Valley uh, pipeline route. And so you can see that some of the places that, in, in Giles County and some of the blue counties that have been um, healthier on economic indicators, my concern seeing what fossil fuel history has done in the coal fields is to see that kind of inequality and um, poverty spread from the coal fields up to the fracking fields and then now with the transmission lines um, down through some of the places that had been healthier and had a more mixed economy before now. Um, so the map on the left here shows uh, 
fracking sites in yellow and then the degree of um I'm trying to remember what the the red is is sort of the degree of of commitment to <laughs> fracking um and again you can see that little triangle county monroe county that's in the gray that has not been overwhelmed by the economy of fracked gas that is now um being forced against the will of almost anyone there to house a transmission line from those fracking fields down through um, Summers as the bigger county above Monroe, Monroe, then through Giles County right north of us, then through Montgomery County where we are, and then down into Pennsylvania County where it will link up with a new Southgate extension that's just been announced um, and we suspect we'll get it the rest of the way to the coast for export. So that on the right, you can see that, that orange path of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Um, eminent domain is being used all along the way to take people's land to put in the pipeline on the pretense of public need, but the pipeline will not serve any of the communities that it's passing through. Um, with almost no exception, Montgomery County did just agree to let Roanoke Gas put in a gate station in, in Montgomery County. Um, although that would be their third source of gas. So many of us argued that it was um, really more for Roanoke Gas about the fact that they could make a 15% rate of return on the infrastructure itself than that they actually needed a third source of gas. Um, all right, so giving you the story of my life, um, <laughs> all the way up to the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which has been a four-year fight, but I really got involved in February when the first tree sits went up. Um, in Peters, on Peters Mountain in the Jefferson National Forest. Um, because even from the time I first had a glimmer of this pipeline, I thought, no, no, this is not happening. This is not happening on my watch. This is not happening. We're not expanding fossil fuel industry into counties that haven't hosted it before. Um, a, it's insane to put a 42-inch pipeline over these slopes. It's not been tried before. Um, we know that pipelines are the more recently built ones are more likely to explode from the data. Um, even in flatter areas, why would we um, try this? Um, especially given the karst um, topography we have here with sinkholes and caves and the fact that we're in a seismic zone. Um, it's, and it's clear that the sedimentation in, exceeds the Virginia water quality standards if you're talking about the narrative standards. We don't have numerical standards for wa water quality for DEQ to enforce, which has been one of their ways of getting out of um, enforcing anything. Um, so the fact that this pipeline was... I'll give an example, so wildly unpopular that when my husband said, can you put those flyers, I had put some flyers out in my front yard for people to go visit the monopod sitter who was doing an aerial blockade in the forest. And my husband said, can you put them kind of between us and our next door neighbors so they're not sure which house to egg? <laughs> and I said, actually, of all the fights I have ever been in in my entire life, there, this is the least controversial one. There's No one's going to egg our house because everyone here agrees. Um, there's been almost universal opposition to this pipeline. So that although people often talk about this only in terms of an environmental fight, for me it's a fight about democracy. It's a fight about regulation and permitting and representation and um, uh, systems that don't honor uh, people's 
needs, wishes, and in some ways, how could I not have ended up where I ended up this summer is the way I feel about it. So the first tree that I mentioned is the top left that went up February 26th. Um, uh, it was in, then inspired Red Terry to go up on her own property that had been taken for, through eminent domain and her daughter as well. Um, they were in their tree sits for 35 days. And there were 95 days of aerial blockades, February to uh, May. Um, and then there was a lull. And in June, I decided that I needed to, to do something. So that larger picture is, again, Brush Mountain, um, June 28th, and a picture of me uh, locked with a steel pipe onto the excavator. Because, um, and the banner that I had, um, you can see here a little bit better, said pipelines or democracy you choose to Virginia Democrats. Because again, um, I felt like the, uh, the corruption at every level from the federal down was as much what I was protesting as um, local water, water quality, uh, property rights, or um, even climate change, although that was another big motivator for me. Um, what else to say about that day? Just that I was pretty happy, as you can see. It was a good day. Um, it's had a lot of blowback in terms of my uh, Virginia Tech collaborations, um, in part because I was working on some projects, including one that I'm working on now with uh, an undergraduate course studying uh, community concerns about health effects from the Radford Arsenal. And the boards of supervisors for Pulaski and Montgomery County felt like um, the benefit of that project had been that Virginia Tech could be seen as a neutral third party and that my actions in the summer made it clear that I wasn't objective and neutral when it comes to environmental um, health, community advocacy, uh, et cetera. So um, my response was that, well, we know research isn't impartial or objective to begin with. Every researcher is motivated to conduct the research they conduct from some personal place. I don't care what your research is. I don't care if you're an engineer or water quality specialist or what have you. Um, and that it's okay to start with principles that's, that motivate our work. That our principle that we began with was that the well-being and flourishing of rural communities is a good thing. Um, that's why we're doing the work that we do. And that should and does, it should shape what gets researched not just who's paying what, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that it compromises the methods and it must not predetermine the conclusions. Um, but nonetheless, we have to acknowledge that we, you know, we have, you can't really say you have a dog in that fight at Virginia Tech anymore, but you have to acknowledge that you have, <laughs> there's something in it that you're in it for. Um, and so that as a responsible scholar, I have to be open to being wrong and be willing to revise expectations and understandings. Now, this is another idea of scholar activism that's a little bit different from what I was just arguing, um, because she's trying to, I'm kind of, I was, I'm trying to argue that the, the principles can and should direct the research. What she is arguing um, as a scholar of higher education is that the scholarship's the beginning point, but you should be allowed to act on it. 
So do you see how that's a different model? For, for me, I'm saying the principle, I start with the principle, and that, and that does shape my scholarship. She's saying she's acting as if the scholarship kind of does its own thing independently, but then you have to act on it. Now, I, I don't quite agree with her, but I do think that she's making a really important observation that despite numerous calls for more scholars to become engaged in discussions about real-life problems, many continue to downplay the work of scholars who act on their findings. So she wants to say, I'm a scholar first, and then once I do my neutral methods, I act on what my findings. Um, and I think she's right that there's been a lot about catering to real life if it's, um, you know, used to be Hewlett Packard, maybe now it's, or Lockheed Martin, and maybe now it's Amazon. But um, there's a lot to do about we should be partners with real world actors. But it tends to be, you tend to be able to preserve that semblance of neutrality if it's um, an actor that's perceived as not political, right? Like Amazon, even though we know that, of course, Amazon has a politics um, just as much as Appalachians Against Pipelines does. So one point that I want to make here, um, I'm sorry I'm going longer than you, than you asked, but I just want to close with an, the idea that this is the rich economy that we have here. It's not perfect. We do have inequality. We do have people struggling. We do have people who want better paying jobs and not so long commutes. But these are the existing businesses the pipeline is disrupting. It is going right through this Doe Creek farm with its apple cider orchard and um, hand, you pick apple orchard and wedding venue right through this sheep farm in Monroe County, right through Advantage Ranch, which is the property that I was on, right through, um, actually this is nearby but not right through the goat farm in Eastern Montgomery County. Um, if we wanna have a real conversation about what a vibrant Virginia would look like, it needs to begin with some pretty basic issues with the democracy in this state from the governor to the DEQ on down. And if Virginia Tech wants to be about regional economic development, not just promoting its own self-image, then it needs to use its weight in a positive direction rather than stay silent as the destruction ravages the countryside five miles from here. These are some of my scholar activist partners from that day, other professors and other community people who were on the sidelines keeping me safe by bearing witness. And so I just want to acknowledge that the work is never um, an individual, that it's always about only possible by the community. So thank you very much. Well, I'd like to say thank you so much. Um, that was a wonderful introduction, and um, my head is spinning with so many <laughs> ideas right now. Uh, but we'll just introduce ourselves. Neda, go ahead. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Uh, my name is Neda. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in planning, governance, and globalization. And I'm Laura Nagel. I'm a master's student, second year in the urban and regional planning program. So, so. Um, before we get into our questions, I'd just like to touch on um, what you're describing. And it um, coming from environmental studies backgrounds, um, I have felt this tension of whether you can be an activist and also a scholar. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been really great working with this group and reading about how people interpret that. Um, Paolo Freire, for example. Um, 
And in fact, our guest from the forum last uh, month talked about the professional neutral um, as a, a mediating external role to, in potentially a heated debate, kind of moderate. Um, even though that person might have very uh, strong opinions about the topic, it's their professional role not to express them, at least at that point, perhaps, or to guide the conversation and um, perhaps for, if they're hired by a special interest, to guide the conversation and maybe inform it, but not um, be overbearing. So, so it's a question that you know, we're considering is, to what extent does the scholar have um, an opinion, and, and is their role to educate, or is it to mediate? Um, and how does that differ with a consultant, for example? So. Um, as we're working in communities and assisting with capacity building through strategic visioning. So, um, yeah, so thank you for that. That was very insightful. Yeah, it may be that part of why this uh, series of events was so difficult for the research group that I'm a part of is because um, the Appalachian Studies role perhaps was seen as a kind of mediator role mm. more than an advocate mm -hmm. role. And so perhaps my colleagues envisioned my piece as a connector mm -hmm. and a professional neutral, mm -hmm. um, not as a community advocate. And maybe I would have agreed with that assessment at some point. I, I mean, it really has been this particular fight in its proximity um, that has made that an impossible position for me to maintain. And so it, perhaps the group needs such a person mm -hmm. as a professional neutral to, to be a mediator. Um, but expecting it to come from Appalachian studies is, is maybe, you know, it's, uh, I don't know that much about the history of this field, but understanding that Appalachia has been rife with struggles of um, like you're saying, across race, across class, gender, perhaps, um, that that would be, <laughs> it's an interesting expectation um, that you would be neutral, necessarily. And maybe only possible because one has to be so careful in the years one's chasing tenure, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that there, there, you, there does, the academy does discipline you into being a certain kind of academic citizen out of fear of, um, the consequences of not getting that that tenure prize, mm -hmm. um, and then the fact that I was dual career meant that that initial seven years was essentially doubled because Virginia Tech didn't offer him a tenure track position until they were sure that they wanted to offer me tenure, and so my probationary period. Um, I mean, it was worse for him, believe me. Mm -hmm. But our probation probationary period was even longer than for most academics, and by the time you get tenure, maybe. Um, you're busy enough and well-trained enough that you don't think outside the box anymore because you've been deferring gratification since you were a first-year graduate student. Yeah, right. I, I was just thinking about being an even making time for this sort of activity outside of studies, outside of trying to publish, outside of um, making networking within you know academia with colleagues, for example. It's it's asking a lot. It's a lot. Uh, Maybe I could be time. a cautionary tale. Like if you make someone bottle it up for so many years, then it might just explode <laughs> in these crazy ways. <laughs> Maybe. Let's you just get fed up <laughs> waiting. Um, 
Okay, so <laughs> so um, on the topic of the ecological and human health and rural communities cross-disciplinary initiative that's been launched at Virginia Tech, um, of which you're a part, um, our question is, um, you did you did touch on this a little bit. What's your specific research and teaching role, and and has that changed since the expectations have been made plain and and your um, your perspective differs? So. Moving forward, what will be your your research and teaching role with that? So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the next slide, Ruth, because I did because I saw that you were gonna be asking about this research team. I did do, pull a little bit of the language um, from our founding um, that included drawing um, a, as we appealed in our application to the Global System Science Destination Area to please fund ecological and human health in rural communities, we um, appealed to the principle of utprosum. That was part of our founding document. Um, and you can see from our mission and vision that there are principles there. Again, it, it's not that um, the, the group didn't agree, the six of us coming in, that we had shared goals for flourishing, for well-being. Um, and in fact, even before uh, my direct action uh, in, in June, there was some concern on campus that the group was better understood as an activist group, not a, a scholarly group, a research team. Um, and perhaps that's in part because of my role or because of the mission and vision. I don't, I don't know, because I certainly never heard those concerns, but I know that my colleagues did get those um, concerns from their colleagues. Um, so... So I don't know where this research team is right now. We are on a one-year hiatus, um, which was, was prompted by um, my colleagues' uh, concerns about whether I had jeopardized the group's research by um, being arrested in the public way that I was arrested. Um, and so we declined our destination area funding this year and um, decided to just take a breather and revisit after a year um, where we were with one another. And part of the concerns are, for example, one person who said she's been working for decades to build trust in Giles County and what would this, um, you know, what would this do to those carefully laid uh, relationships, which I think is absolutely um, a legitimate concern. I also think that it's possible, um, I have only have anecdotal information about this, but that we've gained a lot more credibility <laughs> in Giles County um, as a consequence of my visibility uh, as an advocate. Um, another partner was concerned that her collaborators wouldn't work with her anymore. It was basically me or them, that they um, were concerned that they're, and I'm, I'm sort of gathering from implied things now, so I'm not exactly sure, but I, I, I gather that there would be concern about um, grant opportunities, that if, um, that they might not want to work with her on a grant application because she was seen as tainted by me um, and that's a real problem for people. It's not a problem. 
I don't need to get grants. I mean, there's certainly plenty of pressure and, and encouragement to get grants, but my career isn't dependent on my grant writing the way it is for most professors at this university. So um, what part of your questions is what is the, you know, the cross-disciplinary, what are some of the difficulties in translation or reaching across those lines? And that's certainly one of them that my colleagues are trained to think in teams as teams mm-hmm. and I am not. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, humanists are that idea that you're sitting alone writing, you know, just reading and writing. And um, I had this desire to move beyond that into teamwork, mm-hmm. but not um, an understanding of how precarious mm-hmm. a position I might be putting people in by my own choices. Mm-hmm because I come from a humanities place, not from um, a, an engineering or science place. So on the one hand, I could say, hey, you should see things my way. And on the other hand, they could say, hey, you need to see how much you've jeopardized our, our work, potentially. Um, or that they feared that that might be the case. I don't know that, that it is. So one of the things that this brought home to me was if, if Virginia Tech or institutions of higher learning are going to ask for cross-disciplinary collaborations, then there does need to be this professional neutral, right? It's like somebody to mediate the, the whole worldview that can clash uh, when, you, when you put to people together who have such. In, in the humanities, even in some social sciences, whether it's anthropology or geography, um, the idea of participant observation and, and being connected to communities lends itself to a recognition that scholars can be activists, whereas um, the colleagues that we're working with have really been strongly warned that they should be seen as neutral, even though we know that no human being can be completely impartial or neutral or objective. And and that gets a little bit into our next question um, and it, perhaps qualitative research is in a more advanced position to acknowledge positionality or a bias. Um, it has more infrastructure, let's say, or mm-hmm. to do so, it's um, more mainstream part of qualitative research. So, um, Neda. Um, yeah. First of all, I wanted to thank you for your presentation and also for your courage and brave act of activism because I feel that Democracy is like a tree, and freedom of speech is one of the fruits. Mm. If you pick it, it becomes more and more thriving each year. Mm. Many of us in the world doesn't, don't have that, and when I see these kinds of work, I really get excited. And, um, it's a I beautiful just, metaphor. I just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, you touched upon some of the challenges related to community uh, across disciplines. Um, my question was, how do you combine these advanced qualitative methods with uh, technical quantitative ones? Uh, how do you merge it and marry it, these techniques across disciplines? One of the reasons that's such a challenge, I think, is because of what Laura was just saying about if, if social sciences and humanities are places where people work on constructing frameworks to understand the relationship between the quantitative and the qualitative. And at a place like Virginia Tech, engineering and science are primary, right? They are, their authority is unmatched. 
And so if you're asking scientists and engineers to rethink from outside their frameworks, using frameworks coming from science and technology and society or other humanistic and social science observations about um, expertise, authority, science, etc., you're asking them to divest some power. And um, that's really hard. I mean, we all know that the stakes in academia are very low and the struggles are really pitched, right? And so if you're asking anybody to give up any measure of power, uh, my sense is that, that the humanities and social science have been asked to be handmaidens to scientific projects and to come on board as um, adding some context or fluff, but not to reconceive the entire enterprise. And the kind of insecurity and defensiveness that can arise when you ask people to reconceive their entire enterprise, which is their entire identity and being, and the foundation for all of their status in the world, <laughs> including at their career, that is very, very difficult to walk into. And especially when I, I wasn't anticipating it. Mm -hmm. And especially when we're talking about this is a group of six women. These are people who are already marginalized in the academy, especially in science and engineering compared to where I am. So if you're talking about somebody whose hold on her career already feels tenuous, and you're talking about living in a Trump era where science is questioned as legitimate, period, and then you're asking them to reconceptualize the role of science in relationship to communities and knowing, that's a hard ask. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it should not come as, it should not have come as such a surprise <laughs> that that would be um, an existential crisis for us. Great answer, yeah. Um, okay, so um, more broadly thinking about um, segueing a little bit into um, frameworks and methods for studying identity and sense of place in Appalachia um, and how it affects community development. Um, we had a question about um, Appalachian identity complicating or supporting partnerships that investigate human and ecological health. Um, and I think we can also maybe tie it into um, a question of critical regionalism, perhaps. Um, so in reviewing this book by, oh, I still have it, yes, um, Douglas Reichert Powell. Um, it's a fabulous book. Yeah, um, and, and I think this concept is also an architectural theory. So it's interesting to to have it in the so in a social science framework or for a humanities framework, but um, stating that critical regionalism is um, recognizes region, regions not as hermetically sealed landscapes containing unique cultural practices, but as evolving cultural histories of the interactions between people and places. Um, it's not invested in the past, but in the future. And further. Um, you wrote, Crit critical regionalism is not, however, more interested in, in ideas about regions than in regions themselves. It is concerned with the consequences of ideas about regions. Instead of asking whether a particular version of a region is authentic or not, critical regionalism asks whose interests are served by a given version of a region. And so um, 
Our follow-up question was... Uh, we wanted to know whether and how you find critical regionalism to be a useful framework for community development or understanding Appalachian politics more generally. Absolutely. I think that's one of the... Why I'm so drawn to it is because it... Um, uh, the more activist feminist geographers um, that that Doug is drawing on um, and and fleshing out in his work is this idea of region as process, region as history, and uh, it's not static. And so often the people who are drawn to Appalachia are drawn to this notion of it as isolated and static. And um, one of the things he talks about is, uh, you know, the emphasis on the products of regional culture as if the culture is static. So that if you say you do Appalachian studies, somebody, um, and again, this is, these are all really important pieces, but somebody assumes that you only do quilts or dulcimers, right? And not politics. And so Doug's vision of critical regionalism helps us see that a place is always in process. Um, no matter how backwards or isolated or um, homogeneous you want to paint it to be, and that the ways you imagine it as in process and active or as um, in amber captured in time affects what kinds of politics are possible and what kinds of development is possible. Um, and, and similarly, insisting that we roused people out of the 19th century into the 21st century by giving them a call center or industrializing is also a mistake in terms of how you understand place and process of, of regionalism. So um, I think that the, the power of a critical regionalism framework is to recognize places as in process, as um, people with histories and desires and futures and uh, who are drawing absolutely on resources from the past, always, um, and have incredible skills and expertise, whether that's in quilting or music or what have you, but that um, uh, no economic development plan should depend upon a place being the same or static or iconic or frozen in, in time. Which is especially interesting for tourism. The questions of tourism—it's absolutely a huge um, tension in uh, tourism as an economic development driver for for a lot of peoples and places, including Appalachia. Mm -hmm. What kind of music are you allowed to play sure. and mm -hmm. still um, attract tourist dollars? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of Mountain Stage, which I think their philosophy has been to bring all sorts of genres. But it, I think, think if you hear the the Mountain Stage as a production uh, based in West Virginia, right? Mm -hmm. um, oh, that must be very Appalachian. They must only play bluegrass or folk or. Um, but uh, so it's interesting that if you listen to the show, it's more diverse and it's trying to attract new work as well as traditional work. So. Um, because it's not just that place is not stuck in time, it's also not stuck in place. It's mm -hmm. always connected, right? Mm -hmm. It's always influenced by migration, by connections, whether that's through telecommunications or whatever means. Mm -hmm. That place is shaped by immediate face-to-face -face proximate, but it's also shaped by global and by, um, by movement. Mm -hmm. And so I think a, a show like Mountain Stage recognizes that um, you may choose to play old-time music, um, and you may also be 
influenced by Piedmont blues or um, South African music or, or what have you, and that you shouldn't demand purity mm-hmm. um, in this for the name of authenticity, mm-hmm. that, that, that music and arts are um, enriched by all of the influences upon them. Mm-hmm. And that Appalachian music itself is a product of African mm-hmm. and uh, um, European uh, coming together in place and time and learning how to pair a banjo with a fiddle. Mm-hmm. Um, so why would you expect it to stop there? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you not embrace its ability to continue to, to grow and evolve? Sure. Without um, commodifying it too much or entirely erasing it because of um, pop popular culture um, music standards, you know. So it's challenging to both celebrate the past and and maintain what we have, but but also let it evolve it and stay unique. Um, okay, so oh, okay. So the next question is. Um, a little bit more about the boundaries of Appalachia. Um, in your article with um, Stuart Scales and Abigail August called Mapping Appalachia's Boundaries Historiographic Overview and Digital Collection, um, you are looking at the variations of the geography of Appalachia. And so one question that came to mind was if identity is pretty strong in, in helping people um, determine sense of place and home, for better or worse. Um, do communities on the edge of the region, um, are they confused by these changing boundaries? Um, and and do these, are these boundaries principally economic, or um, is there um, entrenched cultural reason for the boundaries and, and how they're determined, whether you have the core and then, uh, or you're more generous, and you you extend the boundary further east, west, north, south. So, um. well, I think what what most Appalachian Studies scholars would agree now is that, um, in some ways, the the boundaries of the region writ large don't matter. You're not going to do a. It's not going to be very helpful to do a study of. Mississippi to New York and try to make any kind of generalized statement about it so that your boundaries for any given study are going to be much more um, nuanced and textured and you might do Coalfields counties or fracking counties or you might do Western North Carolina tourist counties. Um, So I I wasn't in doing that piece trying to like pin down what's the right version of Appalachia so much as I was responding to a frustration that the Appalachian Regional Commission's definition of Appalachia in Virginia left out so many of our mountainous counties. And so I wanted to have an option for people to see, um, yeah, it's it makes sense to talk about Appalachian Virginia to include these counties that got added in later or um, that never got added into the Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, and just to, for it was more an attempt to document a history and offer additional options for people than to try to say there's a right way or a wrong way mm-hmm. to, to define the region. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was also a, a wonderful opportunity for me to work with an instructor in geography and an undergraduate student in geography mm-hmm. and um, put together multiple uh, sets of expertise and, and mapping and ArcGIS and um, 
Appalachian Studies. Um, so I've just enjoyed the collaborative projects recently and um, was really grateful to Stuart and Abby for working with me on that. Great. Okay. Uh, so as someone not from around, um, I was curious to know whether um, the notion of Appalachia as white has changed during the last decades. If so, why? If not, why? Might be a better question for the audience. I don't think it has. I don't know. I, I think the Appalachian Studies keeps trying to say um, this place wouldn't run without Latino migrant labor in the strawberry fields or tobacco in some cases more historically than present. Um, uh, Appalachian Studies has worked to make visible um, African-American communities, Af African-American history and coal mining. Um, Virginia Tech's worked um, alongside Christiansburg Institute to show um, uh, the role of African-Americans in this part of Appalachia and um, uh, has also worked with the Wake Forest community, which is descendants of the slaves of Kentland, to find the unmarked slave graves, uh, graves at the Virginia Tech property, Kentland. Um, so I think there's been a lot of effort um, to complicating what counts as Appalachia. And Elizabeth Katz's new book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, also um, tries to drive home this argument. But I don't think we've made a lot of headway. I think that that I think that most people would agree that in the national imaginary, Appalachia is seen as good white country people. Um, even in this pipeline fight where one of the most impressive sort of points of learning, I think, has been the ways in which people like the Terrys, whose claims to the land they will date to seven generations back to the King of England, are coming into conversation with people like the tree sitters in the Jefferson National Forest who are talking about the fact that this is already twice stolen land and that the indigenous people's history in Appalachia has been erased. Um, and uh, that any claims to opposition to the pipeline um, need to be understood in the context of a series of dispossessions, not just in the most recent dispossession of white middle-class people. So do you think um, this reluctance to accept that the Appalachia is not wholly white is because people do not want to think there is a home, there is an American home in the heart of Appalachia, or is it something else? I think it's a, it's a combination. I mean, it is about 95% white. I mean, it's a very disproportionately white region, as are the, you know, the West. And so there, are dis there are a lot of disproportionately white areas um, in the country. So part of it is that it's partly grounded in reality, especially in the present, because people aren't aware that historically um, there were sundown towns, not just in Appalachia, but all over the country where African-Americans were driven out of counties or um, that African-Americans left counties in search of opportunities and cities so that we've seen a whitening of Appalachia over time, that, that the current demographics are not representative of the historical demographics. Um, but I do think that part of it is um, a construction of America as at root at base, at heart, white, that has led in the 1940s during the era of eugenics to today, um, and before that in the 1890s even, to a desire to see some place in America as protected from immigration and protected from the taint of uh, the races. And I, you know, I, I think that's 
um, the very dangerous part of romances with Appalachia that I've I've been fighting against. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, that leads into so in 2010, um, you were writing that Appalachian identity politics have unintentional and objectionable consequences when they feed into white American nationalism. Um, Southern neo-Confederate nationalism, widespread and intensifying nativism, xenophobia, and anti-immigration hysteria. Um, Boy, we didn't know how good we had it in 2010. Yeah, so (laughs) thinking about it now, uh, so the tendency is still true, and I'm I'm, I'm assuming, and um, again, so where, where research and praxis comes in, how many popular books must be written uh, for this notion of Appalachia to change or are other types of media necessary or um, what, what is the role essentially of research and then praxis in mediating that notion? I mean, in some ways we're even more entrenched, right? Because Appalachia has gotten written off by the national left as Trump country um, that working class whites sort of deserve what they get for for voting for Trump is the way that narrative goes. Um, so there's a kind of blame blame game happening that I'm not trying to deny that um, that whites in all parts of the country haven't contributed to um, xenophobia and anti-immigrant hysteria, but um, I also think that we're really missing an opportunity to um, try to build alliances based on an insistence that government works for people, all the people, and that that we all, I think we kind of all agree that we need to drain the swamp. We just haven't agreed on what that would look like, um, uh, how to oust government corruption and the revolving doors between lobbyists and industry people and and, and governing agencies. Um, I'm kind of getting away from the the question in terms of how what academics um, and artists might do um, in the face of that. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, there's the there's a TEDx talk, the power of the the danger of a single story mm-hmm. that you may have seen, and I think that just multiplying the numbers and kinds of stories is always um, important. And when we have um, a media landscape that's so fragmented, uh, it's it, it's hard to reach everyone. People see what they what they want to see. Um, but I do wonder if it would be important to have more um, visual work. I think about the um, the gay mayor in Eastern Kentucky who became an, a sensation on I don't remember if it was John Oliver or Stephen Colbert, but to for for these story and like these now this little short video stories that circulate on Facebook that maybe those kinds of visuals can help uproot and upset the conventional narratives about Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know. That's a very good point, though. Um, if you're diversifying the story and and also using different media outlets, there's a chance that you will reach a broader audience with a new story about a place. And nor people just the opportunities for people to tell their stories. I mean, none of our stories are uncomplicated. I mean, people who live in the region know that they live in the region with wealthy opioid addicts and 
African Americans and people of other people of color and immigrants and and um, LGBTQ people. So it's um, uh, I think the more people who can tell who ha- would have a platform for telling their stories would would help enrich the vision mm-hmm. of what place is, whatever the place. Sure. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, on a related note, we wanted to know um, what's your suggestion or advice for Appalachian communities who are prioritizing community development goals in terms of developing a project identity that goes above and beyond uh, the identity politics or resistant identities to embrace a politics of solidarity, including with outsiders? Um, so I love this question because it's uh, going back to terms that are, I borrow from Manuel Castells, um, who talks about a resistance identity being a sort of, um, yes, I'm a redneck. Uh, it is all of these stereotypical things, and it's good. So reversing, maintaining the strict boundaries of the stereotypes, but reversing the value judgment, mm-hmm. which you've seen in African-American identity politics and queer identity politics as well. And you can see it to some extent in Appalachian or hillbilly identity politics. And what Manuel Castells says is that um, that only gets you so far because it reinforces these kinds of divides and essentialisms. And so... Um, if you see a, a shared project, then that's what really can drive a movement forward. And um, so I think that's been one of the successes of this uh, anti-pipeline movement. And in the coal fields where uh, Friends of Coal has really done a masterful job of convincing people that the elites are looking down on you and outsiders are, are bad and we're insiders, the coal industry is, is, is insiders and we're, we're on your side and they're not. Um, we don't we don't have that kind of uh, monopoly of fossil fuel industry in along the Mountain Valley Pipeline route, and that opens up some options that um, people haven't along the pipeline route said. Where are these people coming from? They don't belong here. Well, they've said that about the tree cutters who are from Wisconsin or about the the pipeline companies that are from Oklahoma or Texas or what have you. So it's still definitely an insider-outsider politics is operating, but it hasn't operated that way in terms of solidarity against the pipeline so that we have um, this amazing resistance built of goat farmers and house cleaners and professors and accountants and um, and people from Northern Virginia who've lent their voices and come come down on destruction tours um, and people in Richmond who show up at the governor's office every week, every Wednesday, and they show up in solidarity. So I think that the pipeline fight, I mean, I'm hopeful that to the extent that people are paying attention, they're seeing a project identity at its most successful intergenerational um, at, you know, to the extent there's much racial um, or diversity of um, nativity here, you know, a, a little bit of that as well, but certainly cross-class and uh, cross-age. Um, and I think that it shows that it's not about, for me, it's about a defense of Appalachia, but it's not about being Appalachian. It's about being um, for for protecting one another and taking care of one another. And... Um, Anybody who embraces that notion of democratic well-being um, is part of the fight. And so I, I think probably there's very 
probably very much microclimates <laughs> to the extent that resistance identity or project identities can flourish. But I think we're seeing a prime example of a project identity that's flourishing right now. It's very exciting to me. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, just a couple more questions and then um, we'll open it up for audience questions. Um, so, so speaking of uh, horror and the and the gothic, um, it's from your presentation. Um, getting a little bit more into how backwoods rural America has been portrayed over time, and um, how these tropes are influencing again regional stereotypes. Um, and for if if over time these the the reality changes in your work, have you seen that the tropes change? Does that do those two follow in hand, or um, are these tropes actually, um, because they're set in a specific time, um, quite stagnant and hard to throw? And and for the for entertainment and the sake of um, producing a horror film, you know, we're, are we clinging to these tropes to just to make another horror film? So, um, I think the tropes are pretty durable. Um, one of my favorite horror theorists um, wrote a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, and she talks about the deliverance as a prime example of mapping a kind of rape revenge movie onto an environmental movie that the hillbillies, so the aggressors in deliverance are the city people who are damming the river for their own enrichment, right, for their own electricity in Atlanta. Um, and there's an acknowledgement that that's wrong. But then the hillbillies have to do something so egregious that the city's overpowering of them is justified. That's the way Carol Clover reads that movie. And I, I think that you can see that in, um, in a lot of horror movies, if you look carefully, that the, that the rural acts out in such a way that it has to be put down by the city. And that it's a, that the stories we tell in horror movies are ways of re-justifying civilization and getting it. Now there is a counter thread um, that um, Bernice Murphy notes of eco-horror. So you might have seen an M. Night Shyamalan movie where the plants start killing the humans, for example, or that the humans are the aggressors and the planet will fight back. And you're starting to see that a little bit in some, um, and, the, the, and there may be kind of an overlap to a certain extent between horror movies and climate change um, movies like um, the apocalyptic snow one or whatever, or um, the Snowpiercer, uh, for example, where... Um, you know, I think horror movies are trying to, at some level, grapple with um, the end of times. Uh, Robin, oh, why is his name escaping me at the at the moment? Um, talks about Texas Chainsaw Massacre as not it's envisioning the end of civilization, but it's never in civilization in general. It's always he argues. Um, envisioning what it would mean for capitalism to end in the United States. So, so I'm, I'm talking, and I'm not being helpful here, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, there's two ways of thinking about horror movies. One is, yes, they reinforce long-standing tropes and stereotypes, and Rebecca Scott makes a strong case in the beginning of her book, Removing Mountains, that 
representations of hillbilly cannibals in movies like Wrong Turn justify um, dismissing places like Appalachia as sacrifice zones. Whatever happens to them deserves to happen to them, and we're not going to worry about it. But on the other hand, horror movies are also trying to think through um, what the logical end of capitalism looks like. If you take capitalism, if you take that anything can be a resource for market, then why not making barbecue out of humans in Texas? Why not um, body parts, um, black markets? Um, so movies like Hostel, it sees tourism, uh, torture tourism, for example, that, uh, that horror movies aren't necessarily only reinforcing negative stereotypes, although they certainly are doing that. They are also thinking about what, the, what our proclivities could lead us to should we allow them to go unchecked, as in, again, examples of um, torture tourism and hostile. Um, so I, that's one reason I find them so fascinating is I don't think that they're um, easily ideologically um, pin-downable. I think that they can be doing different things and um, maybe even different things for different audiences. It's, it's similar to science fiction, right? Exploring um, even what we're talking about now in uh, a capstone studio is um, how to prepare cities for autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, maybe looking to science fiction to explore how the imagination takes that further and, and to tr- because a lot of it's unknown right now for planners to to anticipate what what needs to change what needs to um, um, how even streetscapes will change and who should finance it and what are the liability issues with accidents and that sort of thing so um Maybe we should be watching The Walking Dead instead, though, because if the IPCC is right and we don't do anything in the next six to 12 years, yeah. <laughs> we're looking at the collapse of the social fabric, not at autonomous vehicles and sci-fi futures. Right. <laughs> it's a dueling, the dueling genres. <laughs> um, Technology will not save us unless, yeah. Yeah. Unless the politics... I have a greater Change. appreciation for horror now. <laughs> I, I didn't realize it was that deep. <laughs> it's very political. Yeah. Uh, so our last question is about um, books. So drawing from Ron Rash's fiction and poetry about Appalachia, you contended that we can fully cherish Appalachia as home only if, in doing so, we refuse to re- turn a blind eye to its needs. How do you see the role of art, culture, and media to be uh, in recreating or creating hope and also identity based on the realities of Appalachia, especially for those who live there as locals? I think I've really resisted sort of um, arguments about the sense of place in Appalachia. I mean, when they're overly romanticized or static, and art can often contribute to those. I think I've actually shifted a lot in this uh, pipeline fight because I've seen that it's not the brains that we need to engage, it's, it's the hearts and the emotions. And so the affective power of um, the musics played at the tree sits or the poetry read at the Circle of Protection at Union Hill or... Um, you know, I think my frustration as an intellectual has been that it seems like sometimes uh, we're stuck in a bad country music lyric, right? That the, that the nuance isn't there in the art. 
Um, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stomp on my heart and that sucker flat. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and I, and so I, I, I have been frustrated sometimes with the ways that, that music and art can reproduce these simplistic and not helpful visions. But I have come to a much stronger appreciation for the affective power that I still don't want to give up the nuance and the texture. Mm -hmm. I still, it's really important to me to not simplify the message mm -hmm. um, as a scholar. But as an activist, I can appreciate why sometimes the power of the emotion um, is uh, needed and galvanizing and that being in community with one another is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And that the role that that the visual arts and music and, um, I mean, karaoke or anything plays in, in making the fight a joyous one um, and an emotional one is something that I've gained a lot more respect for um, over, over the past year. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thank you all so much for the opportunity. Um, so any questions from the audience? I can... Which one do I take? Oh, you have some more country lyrics for us? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be hard to top that one, but. Met my baby in the Portage Online. That's another good one. There's a lot of good ones. So, so you um, just coupled, one's a comment. You and Laura had a little colloquy about uh, Mountain Stage, which is interesting in light of the, our public radio station. So the foundation owns one of the largest, the Virginia Tech Foundation owns one of the largest public radio, regional public radio stations in the country. And its prior executive director canceled Mountain Stage. Mm. Um, first he cut it back to an hour, it was a two-hour show, and then he, cut it, then he cut it all together. And I inquired, because I was a fan, uh, Glenn, why'd you do this? And he said, well, I got lots of feedback from people in our audience that they could not anticipate uh, what it would be about, that it was such a wide variety uh, that they didn't know what to make of it. In consequence, um, it had foundered in our market, uh, which I found interesting. Just mentioned by point of comparison, uh, I don't know if you know the show American Roots, yeah. out of New Orleans and, and, and um, Nick, I forget yeah. his last name, but he has definitely, I mean, he, he has um, a a sense that every like third song has to be one that the viewers recognize <laughs> so that he is trying to go wide, but he's always coming back to some touchstones of something recognizable. Um, and I don't know. And, and so popular, I mean, it might still be from a wide variety of genres, but something that the listeners would have, would have heard. So it is, um, uh, a, a delicate balancing act to expose people to more in various and, I mean, that's the whole point of genre, right, is that you know what you're getting. Um, you know what to expect from a horror movie or from a um, rom-com. But there's a, there's a deeper point here, I suppose, or probably several, but one that's fascinating to me is even as we left the market, so to speak, for Mountain Stage, our local public radio station said we will not play, um, Mountain Stage has continued to grow in popularity nationally, and more and more local public radio stations have picked it up. Mm. So it, it does give you pause, right? So why are we going in the opposite direction? And this question you raised of the valence of certainty, uh, and I was linking that to your 
your comments about mobilization uh, is important. And to, to be able to deal with ambiguity and people are making judgments, whether in public radio or in market-based radio or in television or whatever, about the capacity of, um, I'll link this to your broader theme, the capacity of their audience to deal with ambiguity. You know, to deal with variety in the case of Mountain Stage. I don't always know what I'm going to hear, but it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Am I open to that, or must I, in fact, be able to identify every third song or every third artist? Rather than say, that's kind of wonderful, never heard of that person before. If I can interject, too, I think in community development, that's maybe a struggle, is people are expecting a specific type of partnership. And if it doesn't end up being that way, right. um, are there techniques to draw it back to something they're familiar with, but while also exposing them to something new? Well, and again, I think Emily raises rightly, and you raise rightly with your uh, discussion with Emily, the question of whether that should even be something you seek to do, bring it back to something they recognize, mm -hmm. or whether there is uh, important portent in their discomfort, mm -hmm. right? And what is your um, ethical obligation, what is your professional obligation as an academic in our discussion today, uh, to think through that question, rather than to say, I'll simplify this and move it back to where you're comfortable, that's because you're comfortable there and that's all well and good. Well, maybe not, if that doesn't conduce to needed change or the opportunity for them to take advantage of the open possibility that would be for them to take advantage of change, right? Um, you're just reminding me of a conversation we had in my grad class last week on uh, J.K. Gibson Graham's piece on diverse economies that now they see the scholar activist role very differently than the kind I've proposed today, but that, that um, how important it is to make space for other ways of being, that, that the scholar's role, the academic's role, an important part of that is, is not documenting what was and is but making room for imagination and possibility. And that might be alarming to some people who want to know, well, what's worked and how do we, you know, how do we revive our downtown or... Um, I think it would be alarming and I think you're, you're exactly right to point that out because that's the dominant way of thinking about the question. So that kind of linear logic uh, can be as often damning as opening up possibilities. And I think that's the problematic dimension we're raising here. I did want to ask you a question too about um, the discussion you were having about um, Donald Trump. So it is an empirical fact that 75% or so of the people of West Virginia voted for Donald Trump. Mm, the it is an empirical the vote fact. was 75, 25, but 75% of the people of West Virginia did not vote for Donald Trump. Well, I understand. But the vote, it's an important distinction, then, no, but let me, ask, let me no, let you ask the question. Vote. Um, understood. Uh, likewise here in our local region, apart from Montgomery County, right? Um, and so where does one go with that? So you make the point, and I, I actually agree with you, but you suggest that we don't want to just blame them and say you should be a sacrifice zone. But what do we make of that? And what are our obligations as scholars uh, and as researchers to, to think about those questions? Because that's where they are. They do turn out in Charleston, Huntington, wherever Trump touches down in large numbers. Uh, and rah, 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 uh, whatever the nativism of the moment, whatever the prejudice of the moment he wishes to spout, uh, and in very large numbers continue to support him. Um, so where do we go from there? If we, if we don't want to go to, I blame you, you deserve what you get, where do we go from there? So I'll back up a little bit more and say um, that people who turned out in the West Virginia primary to vote for Bernie Sanders didn't show up again. 
So I, I do think it's important to recognize that that the vote in West Virginia is partly, um, even in the primary stage, West Virginia was late to vote. So in terms of who was seen as potentially winning the Republican race, um, the, it's not. I, I think it's not fair to compare the the votes for different Republican candidates in West Virginia to the votes for different Republican candidates in a different state that voted much earlier, for example. So there's this whole thing about how many people did actually vote, how many people were disenchanted once Sanders lost the Democratic primary and didn't turn back out. I actually think that a lot of people in Appalachia, a lot of white, maybe especially white men in Appalachia, um, saw in both Trump and Sanders uh, something refreshing about a not business as usual, not politics as usual, and that they um, they might have rallied to um, Sanders, not in the same way that they're, you're talking about rallying to to Trump, the way he can fom- you know foment a crowd with the anti-immigrant hysteria and and racist dog whistles and and blatant racism. Um, but I do think that's important to note that the the desperation for for change, um, for uh, ousting corruption, could have gone either way. Um, on the other hand, I do think that that whites in, and especially white men um, in the United States, even if they aren't in desperate financial straits, are feeling a sense of victimhood that that Trump is very brilliant at at manipulating. That they are feeling like they're losing ground. Um, what else did I want to say um, electorally or then moving on to what you do about the sort of Trump fascination? Um, oh, I guess I, the, electorally I wanted to say that Trump was elected by, what, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and that he was elected... And he was elected by um, suburban, white, educated men and women nationally. So I, I really... I, I both reject Appalachia as Trump country and acknowledge what you're saying, that he certainly can rally a crowd in Charleston or, or where, have, where have you, and that that's a problem. Um, so what do you do about the fact that people are um, galvanized by this racist rhetoric? Um, you know, on the one hand, it seems like you kind of have to offer them I mean, this would be the standard progressive Democrat line. You have to offer them a real alternative. Um, You have to offer them um, not corporate democracy. The corporate Democrats are are what gave us Donald Trump um, to that way of thinking that, you know, eight years of Obama did not address the root causes of um, inequality in the coal fields. Um, That that there hasn't been a reason to vote for Democrats and to, for, for white working class people. Um, another line I've heard is that, um, line of thinking is that, yes, there, that victimhood, white, white victim mentality is strong. And so going with a, a message of inclusion and diversity is not a winning 
message, that an anti-corruption message and a basically a class solidarity message that we all deserve dignified employment um, or economies. It doesn't even have to be employment in the conventional sense, that we all deserve dignified ways of life, um, that that message could bring more people on board. But to my mind, and this is just me now speaking, you can't get that message to people right now because we don't have any media regulation. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> and as long as it makes money, it will it will proliferate. And so if you see something where you have a genuine populace like Anthony Flacavento who can't get more than 35 or 40 percent of the vote in southwest virginia what that tells me and again this is just me i'm not a politician but that fox news is winning and that until you um until you have real voter access and real efforts against citizens united money and politics but also until you have um re-regulation of media that like happened in the 1930s we're not we're not going anywhere because I mean, uh, the, the other path is true on the ground being with people and that's a much longer fight and, and Democrats or greens or leftists can certainly try to do that, build those relationships and solidarities with people on the ground over time. But that's not going to happen in two years. That's more of a decades long, or at least a decade long kind of a, a fight to show up with people and work with people and show them another way. Emily, thank you so much. Um, when you were talking about working with your group, and, and how you know, you're a humanist, you come you, you come from kind of a more qualitative perspective of things. Um, and, and when we do those kinds of things, we're very open about our relationship to whatever it is we happen to be studying. I mean, we're going, okay, I've been with these people, or I've worked on this, you know, we, we're very open about that. Um, as opposed to people who perhaps are coming from the engineering and the more science-oriented, um, the more data, uh, they, you know, worrying about p-hacking and things like that. But you noted that asking them to come around and, and share perhaps a little more of the humanist, um, uh, the social sciences, uh, liberal arts type perspective is perhaps asking them to give up a little power um, and perhaps a little of their own identity. As you were saying that, I was thinking, but that suggests that to get along and do that, that someone from the liberal arts, the, the social sciences, is kind of giving up a good bit of their own identity to make things work. To, to communicate across and get get the work done, that, that you're just kind of subjugating a little bit of your own um, passion for what you're doing and, and your own perspective of what you're doing so that everybody in that interdisciplinary group can get along. And I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about that. It certainly feels that way at Virginia Tech. <laughs> I, I would have to think more about whether that's a fair assessment. Um, it, but it certainly does feel that way that and maybe not just Virginia Tech maybe just nationally right now that that the lack of regard for um, humanities and social sciences compared to um, sciences and engineering um, means that that 
we we seem to be the only ones being asked to to come. I mean, a lot of times these calls for real world engagements um, can seem like anti intellectual mm-hmm. calls that French literature doesn't matter or um, you know. So I, I want to be careful not to when I say that my passion is for real world consequences uh, to not sound anti-intellectual in those ways because I, I do deeply value the work of, of, of humanists. Um, uh, I don't know. Is a, does that, it seems like what you're suggesting may be that um, the, the very nature of interdisciplinary or cross-division collaboration at Virginia Tech would require more um, flexibility uh, of humanists and social scientists than others. And I think the idea might be more flexibility across the board, um, you know, recognizing that everybody's going to be coming to the table and everybody's going to be doing some adjusting. I mean, we do that when we're attempting to create some kind of community and get something done. Um, there, There's that the give and take and negotiation and that sort of thing. And yeah, it can be really uncomfortable to do that if you're particularly comfortable in this particular area and doing things this kind of way when somebody's going, well, you know, what if we look about this? Um, so it, it sounds like that's, there, there's a, maybe a lot more of that negotiation that perhaps we need to be doing. Um, and I do want to say um, that in this group, there has been a lot of that from all six. I, I don't want to it to sound like I'm the only one trying to meet people halfway. Um, there have certainly been people who have said, let's continue this conversation despite what a difficult position you've put me in. And um, a lot of a lot of the language that I showed you of my questioning objectivity and what I wanted to say back to the boards of supervisors, I brought to that group and they 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 said I can't read this like I don't know what you're saying it sounds like you're throwing a lot of jargon at me to justify what you did but I don't understand what you're what you're saying and so that's both really alarming like wait a second how is this not legible to you but also really humble I mean there's been a, a lot of humility on all, from all six of us in terms of deference to your area of expertise uh, I think both are the case. I think people are trying really hard to see things from each other's perspectives and learning from each other and recognizing each other's uh, strengths. And we're just in a power structure that defers to engineering. Yeah, that's an issue in almost all of our interdisciplinary programs right now. So, And they, they, engineers, see a lot of, for them, interdisciplinary doesn't need to include anything in the social sciences or the humanities. And that's been true of the humanities, too. And humanities do political science plus history plus art history or what have you. They haven't always meant. So we, we kind of need new words, which is why I mentioned cross-division um, as another way of thinking about how far are we really stretching ourselves. Not, we're not just doing interdisciplinary. We're doing cross the divisions of science, social science, and humanities. And the challenges of that are real. Thank you so much. Thank you. How's it going? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Like, like a news reporter. Uh, <laughs> my name is Lehi, and I'm a second year PhD program under Dr. Stevenson. A um, couple of quick just comments. Thank you so much for doing what you do. <laughs> the work that you're doing is so important, not only for today, but for future generations. So I'm from Oregon. Mm. We fought the pipeline, the Pacific Connector, for 10 years. 
it was well turned done. down through the legal process. And as soon as the Trump administration came in, he reversed everything and the permits were renewed. And now we're in that struggle again. So even though you follow the proper procedure for Absolutely. judicial, they can go and reverse it. So that's a concern because how much power can we give the government, right? How much, and they are using eminent domain, the same as here. Um, our company is Canadian. Again, there are no step down processes, so we will not receive any sort of usage from the gas. Uh, the final refinery area is in a tsunami zone on the coast of Oregon and is getting shipped directly to China. Um, so just thank you for what you do. It's, I, I feel some comfort <laughs> in knowing that so many people are seeing this for themselves in so many different parts of the country and that we're, it's wonderful to be able to talk to each other across those fights. Absolutely. Um, and then in addition to that, thank you for bringing up the topic of Virginia Tech and how some things are valued higher than others. Um, and as a second year PhD student, I've definitely romanticized higher education, I would say. Um, and a lot of topics, I rock the boat, not going to lie. <laughs> I definitely like to rock the boat and look at different things, and especially in the applied, applied science field, because that's what's critically important to today and the future. So uh, one of the funny comics from last year that I remember reading is uh, the golden rule and he who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> um, so certainly my new program under Dr. Stevenson has been a blessing. Um, and I think people have to find the right tribe. And I, and I do strongly believe that the more we talk about that and address those concerns, the more people can realize that there are other opportunities. And if the current program that you're in isn't working for you, then you have options. So thank you for doing what you do and for being so vocal. Thank you for rocking the boat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for your time and for everyone participating. Um, we have a lot to think about. <laughs> thank you all so result. much for your hard work to make this happen. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank your you. thoughtfulness and your questions and your reading. It's, um, it's a real gift to uh, someone who writes stuff that they think maybe only three people ever read for two more people to engage with it that closely a real gift we, so thank you we shared the articles as well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> excellent <laughs> thank you all